Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. Today, we're going to do something we've done only once before in my time as a podcaster. We're going to discuss politics. But don't run off. I think you're going to find this interesting. If you're like me, you know little or nothing about libertarianism. But the more I investigate, the more curious I become. So, I found someone who was nice enough to come on and help me out. She's the chair of the Libertarian Party of Los Angeles County. Please welcome Angela McArdle. Angela, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. We'll cover several things in today's conversation, but primarily, I'd like to discuss the basics of the Libertarian Party so people not familiar with it can better understand why the philosophy has merit. Kind of a Libertarian 101, if you will. Sure, that sounds good. You know, I'd love for you to ask a, ask a lot of questions, so, so ask away. Oh yeah, there'll be plenty of questions. But first, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I chair the Libertarian Party of Los Angeles County right now. I've been doing that for a couple of years. I have also been the secretary of the California State Libertarian Party. I've run for Congress twice in downtown LA, which is California's 34th congressional district. I've generally identified as a libertarian uh, most of my adult life, except for moments where I identified more as as an anarchist and someone operating outside of government because we all get fed up sometimes. And I grew up in a conservative Christian home in Texas. You know, I moved to California when I was a teenager, which is a weird transition. But I think, you know, I think that I've got in a lot of ways sort of a typical libertarian story. I learned about libertarianism when I was a teenager, and I thought that it fit in alignment with my worldview and my values a little bit more than conservatism did. And I'm just loving life as a libertarian right now and doing as much as I can to further the cause. Where in Texas were you from? I have lived all over Texas, but I spent the most time in Longview, Texas, which is about an hour and a half east of Dallas, really close to the Louisiana border. Yeah, that's out in East Texas. And so when did you move to California? I moved to California in the late 90s when I was 15 years old. What is it like to be a libertarian in California, especially Los Angeles? Well, you know, we call it the People's Republic of California. California is really far left. Uh, In the good ways, too, it's not all bad. You know, we've got legalized cannabis couple of cities have now legalized uh, recreational drugs like psilocybin. Some people would actually call them medicinal drugs. And, we, you know, we've got like a very, uh, very relaxed social, social policy and social environment as well. But, of course, the downside, which is what everybody hears about, is skyrocketing rates of homelessness, the highest tax burden in the country, The cost of living is exorbitant. If not the highest, it's the second or third highest in the nation. We really fight over that with New York City, which is not a good contest to win. Uh, Everybody here, most everybody here votes far left and for progressive policies that, in my opinion, are just making it a lot harder for the average person to survive and pay their bills and just get on with their day-to-day life. You know, gas prices are crazy high. Those We've been taxed to death on those as well. So it can be kind of challenging 
to just get through, you know, as a libertarian and look on the bright side. You know, we've got really aggressive uh, gun control laws as well. The list goes on and on. Goodness. What is it like to try to advance the libertarian agenda in that environment? Well, you've got to learn to pick your battles. So the, the lockdowns have actually, in addition to being, you know, terrible and wrecking a lot of people's lives and causing a lot of chaos, they've presented a wonderful opportunity for me to spread the message of libertarianism and individual rights and talk about how we want to see the world set free in our lifetime. So we have seen a little bit of an awakening in the Los Angeles community, especially as people say, hey, some of these things that people said were going to be these policies instituted that were going to help me are really actually hurting me. Is there another way? I get to swoop in and say, yes, why don't you try out libertarianism? So that's been pretty great, actually. Okay, well, let's get into that. The Libertarian Party began in December of 1971. It's celebrating its 50th anniversary this time next year. The official website states that the slogan is the party of principle because they do take a hardline stance on their principles. Wikipedia summarizes it as minimum government, maximum freedom. We'll get into the details in just a moment, but what is your elevator pitch for the Libertarian Party? I like to tell everyone that the Libertarian Party values personal and economic freedom. We care about individual rights and we want to see the world set free in our lifetime. Okay, well, let's get into the platform. All of this can be found on the party website. I'll post the link in the show notes. It's lp.org forward slash platform. According to the official website, the platform centers around three things, personal liberty, economic liberty, and securing liberty. Walk us through the platform in enough detail that people kind of get a full picture. Sure. So, you know, something that the Libertarian Party members really deeply cherish is our statement of principles. And if you ever come to a convention, the next one will be in 2022, you will hear us go on and on about how much we value this this statement and we cherish it and we really safeguard it from getting changed up too much. There are a lot of safeguards in place. The most powerful part of the statement of principles, I think, says we, the members of the Libertarian Party, challenge the cult of the omnipotent state and defend the rights of the individual. That's your opening phrase. You know, that's what opens up the platform and it really sets the stage for how we view the world, that we view we view government as, you know, omnipotent and all powerful because it's been engaged in this power grab for hundreds of years. And we feel that it's our duty to defend the rights of the individual. And a lot of us like to say that the individual is the smallest minority. Further down in the platform, we get into personal liberty. And the platform opens with individuals are inherently free to make choices for themselves and must accept personal responsibility for the consequences of the choices they make. That really sets the stage for how we view interactions, you know, personal interactions, things like drugs, you know, and the platform talks about that more in, in detail, how we view maybe the responsibility and risks that you could take uh, during a pandemic with the coronavirus, even just a regular flu season going to work sick, you know, if you don't have to, things like that. The platform talks about self-ownership, expression and communication, privacy, personal relationships, and so on and so forth. I think about a lot of people when they first open this up, they'll take a look at it and they'll say, well, you know, this seems more about philosophy than politics. But I would say, well, shouldn't it be that way? 
if you're not really sure what your politics are based on, you know, what the foundation is, you you might want to rethink your political ideas. I think that it's really important for your personal philosophical ideas and your political policy to be cohesive. Don't compartmentalize things that affect people's lives to such a degree that politics do. Does that make sense? It sure does. You know, one of the things that we talk about a whole lot as libertarians that can be a little bit polarizing uh, that's found under the personal liberty plank is the notion of uh, expression and communication and free speech. We support full expression of uh, freedom of speech. You know, we oppose government censorship and regulation. Uh, We don't like controls of uh, the media. You know, we don't want it to be in the hands of government. And the same goes with technology. And sometimes... People get a little weirded out on this, you know, even though this is a First Amendment issue, because they think, well, geez, do you want to defend the free speech of people who say terrible things? You know, where do you draw the line? And we say, yes, absolutely. You know, we don't like everything that everyone says. But the minute that we that we start shutting down dialogue, that's a real problem. People work out their ideas with words so that they don't have to work them out with violence. And so we believe that freedom of speech is important for your personal expression, but it's also a safeguard to liberty because without freedom of speech, you know, then we're not free to critique government and we're not free to critique policies that may harm us in other ways. This may not be related, but does this cover content in television, movies, and music? Yeah, absolutely. How do we protect our children from being exposed to certain things? Well, I definitely think that that's in the hands of parents and parents need to be able to protect their children. And thankfully, there are some safeguards, you know, as technology advances, you can put, you know, certain things on your browser to obviously, you know, block block uh, pornographic images from popping up and certain websites of that nature, violent content. There are also settings, I believe, on Netflix and similar streaming services so that you can set it so that it's, you know, kids only watching we really think that the free market generally provides a pretty good, uh, pretty good response to that sort of stuff, but it, but it needs to be balanced with the parent's personal responsibility as well. I guess that's true. I guess, I guess it is a voluntary effort. It's not a government regulation to put ratings on things. Right, ratings. You know, know what your kids are watching. Be involved in your children's lives. But if it's not labeled by the company or content creator as inappropriate for children, there's really no way of flagging it and preventing them from watching it. Right. And it's not, it's not an absolute perfect system, but I think that it generally works pretty well and the market and, and, you know, parenting will be able to sort of work out some of the kinks as they arise. But I would definitely recommend that parents should, you know, sort of keep an eye on what your kids watch and also talk to your kids, you know, if you instill, you know, the right values, I think that it's less likely that your kids are going to want to continue to consume content that is damaging to them. So as we move down, you know, we've got privacy, and I think that privacy is pretty important. It says that libertarians advocate individual privacy and government transparency. So that might sound ugh, kind of bland, blasé, but it's really critical when we think about NSA spying, the Patriot Act. You know, maybe your listeners aren't aware that the Patriot Act allows the government to just look at practically anything and everything, your communications. They can listen in on your phone calls. They can read your emails. That's really disturbing because we wouldn't be okay with our neighbors doing that, right? So why would we be okay with the government doing it? 
you know, we really support the the Fourth Amendment, and that's what the plank says. You know, we support the rights recognized by the Fourth Amendment to be secure in our persons, homes, property, and communications. We need protection from unreasonable search and seizures. That's part of privacy, right? We don't believe that the cops should kick your door in and just take all your stuff without a warrant and due process. And we also think that it's important to keep your medical records private. That's one of the concerns that people have with government health care is that now your, your medical records, you know, are at the fingertips of the government and part of their records. And, and we don't think that that's good. So that's why we really uphold privacy. The next, uh, the next plank, if you want to jump into it, is personal relationships. But did you have any questions on privacy? I think my question about that is, how do we hold the government responsible to be transparent? It's become increasingly more challenging to do that. The best thing that we can do right now is to look at the voting record of your representatives. Look at the voting record of the people who voted to renew the Patriot Act. Uh, you, you shouldn't be voting for those guys. You definitely need to make your opinions known to them, too. They do actually pay attention to constituency emails and letters. So let them know and, you know, try to safeguard your liberties in every way possible. Obviously, you know, you can use Tor browsers and try to do some things to get around government encroachment. I'd also recommend that you look into an organization that is wonderful, and it's called the Tenth Amendment Center. It's run by uh, two guys who are really great, Michael Bolden and Mike Mahari. And this wonderful organization has made some steps to actually keep the NSA and other spying agencies out of certain states by refusing. They, they draft legislation that enables the state to refuse to provide water, power, and services to NSA buildings. So that is pretty cool, you know. We could try to choke them out in ways like that. Okay, that makes sense. So next up is personal relationships. And I think that libertarians sometimes get a bad rap on some of these, and it's really undeserved. Because it says right here that sexual orientation, preference, gender, gender identity should have no impact on the government's treatment of individuals, uh, such as in current marriage, child custody, adoption, immigration, or military service laws. So sometimes libertarians have this uh, this bad stigma that it's all just a bunch of, you know, older white dudes wearing fedoras with neck beards and there's no diversity and they don't care about diversity and they don't care about anyone else. But that's not true because it says right here, you know, in our in our platform that we do care about it because we don't want it, people being discriminated against based on their sexual orientation, you know, by the government. Government doesn't have the authority to define, promote, license, or restrict personal relationships regardless of the number of participants. And that consenting adults should be free to choose their own sexual practices and personal relationships. I think this is like a really important thing to do because this is, you know, people say that, oh, that's a current events issue. I think it's a pretty timeless issue because this is this was an issue back in the in the 50s with, I think it was called Loving versus Virginia, you know, where you had laws prohibiting people from getting married if they were of, you know, two different quote unquote races, stuff like that. You know, the, the, I don't want to say Mormons. So, well, I guess historically Mormons, you know, not the current LDS church. They were obviously heavily persecuted for uh, plurality marriage. And the Libertarian Party thinks the government just needs to absolutely stay out of it. It is not the government's business. 
And I think this is an interesting one to talk about because for people that are on the left side, this is very progressive and this, this is something that might resonate with them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that keeping things like this in our platform, they're pretty important to being able to do effective outreach on both the right and the left. So the next plank is abortion and it's really short. It's really short because abortion is a very polarizing issue in the party and outside of the party. And it says that we should leave the question of abortion up to each person for their own conscientious consideration. There's a lot of fighting sometimes in the party over whether or not this plank is really neutral because people think, oh, well, if you just leave it up to yourself, then that mean, that's really a pro-choice statement. I don't know a better way to word that, you know, we're not taking an opinion on it by saying we're not taking an opinion on it. The only other thing we could do is remove the abortion plank entirely from the platform. But, you know, that's a little bit of internal uh, internal party politicking for you right there. And I think that this is an issue that, you know, in an ideal libertarian world, wave a magic wand, right? Everything is perfectly libertarian. People are still going to disagree on this, you know, and the plank, the plank says that people can hold good faith views on all sides. And I think that that's true. So the best that we can do is to just say that we think government should be kept out of it. That's the most consistent. I think it's just tough because this is definitely one of the issues on a short list of single, single issue voting. But I also agree with you because kind of what you're saying is, is there's really no great way to address this issue other than to try to be consistent with the rest of the platform. Yeah, there are a couple of other interesting uh, planks that we'll get into that I think sort of mirror the language in this one. You know, next up is uh, we discussed parental rights a little bit, but crime and justice. This is a really meaty part of the platform, but I think that it because it covers a lot, but I think it can really be boiled down to the fact that we believe that government's role is to protect the rights of individuals. That's really it. Uh, we, the, we don't see the government role to be more than that. It's not, oh, rights are granted by the government. No, no, no. You're, you know, your rights are innate. They're, you're, a, you're a sovereign individual with, with rights that are natural, however you want to digest natural rights. That's a whole nother conversation. But uh, we think that government should never be permitted to violate your rights, you know, the rights to life, liberty, and and property. Property is a really important thing for libertarians. We also favor the repeal of laws that create crimes without victims. So in the plank, it discusses gambling, the use of drugs for medicinal or recreational purposes, and consensual transactions involving sexual services. We think that those are victimless crimes. And that any laws making those acts criminal should be repealed. So what this doesn't talk about the morality of gambling or sex work or drug use. It just says that government has no place regulating it because people have different values and people are free to make their own choices. Alcohol, for example, people harm themselves with alcohol, you know, and people enjoy alcohol without harming themselves. The more government restrictions you place on it, the more problems arise. You know, there was a lot of violence in Prohibition era. And so we would like to see the violence surrounding sex work, drug use and gambling. We'd like to see all of that lifted. And uh, we definitely support restitution to the people who've been arrested for, by, for victimless crimes to the fullest degree possible. This is another one that's very progressive and hard for many to digest. But if you take a more pragmatic, logical approach, it makes a ton of sense because 
if you're a consenting adult, you should be able to make these types of decisions and there shouldn't be a third party authority telling you what to do in this situation. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, if heroin is legalized tomorrow in Los Angeles, I'm not lining up to inject myself with heroin. Right. I think the same goes for for gambling and for legalizing sexual services. Just because things are legalized doesn't mean that you're going to see a huge spike in in those services. And in fact, you could look at other countries and areas of... uh, areas of the United States that have legalized some of these services and you don't see huge spikes in uh, drug use when drugs become legalized. People who are doing them will self-report a little bit more honestly. So you'll see a small spike, but that doesn't necessarily change the amount of drug use. It just means people are no longer afraid to answer polls and questions about it honestly, which I think is great because I want people to be honest and, you know, live uh, non-compartmentalized lives. Just like not have to tell lies because they're afraid of getting in trouble. Well, I think the fear here is that if if the government's not mandating morality, then people become less moral, and I don't know that that's true. Right, it's absolutely not true, and and people don't uh, people don't share the same values either, and that's something that we need to remember. And and when I message to people on the on the right of the political spectrum, I'll remind them that you know it's just like gun control. We see gun control implemented in areas like Chicago, which is colloquially known as Chirac, to make fun of how much gun violence is there. We, you know, we argue that gun laws don't reduce gun crime and violent crime. We need to extend the same argument to drug laws and realize that trying to over-legislate and control people's lives does not control uh, criminology. It, that's just not the way that it works. The rest of this part of the platform deals with the court system. So the Libertarian Party advocates for speedy trials, legal counsel, presumption of innocence, trial by jury, many of the things that are currently in place. None of that changes. The one thing that stood out to me is where it says, juries to not just judge the facts, but the justice of the law. And the constant evaluation of the system is not something that's happening enough today. Yeah, so that's basically referencing what's known as jury nullification. So if you ever have the opportunity to get on a jury, I know jury duty sounds boring and terrible, but I highly recommend that you do so because you have a wonderful opportunity potentially to save someone from being thrown in jail or hit with, you know, fines and a criminal record over what I view as an unconstitutional drug law. You can get in and you can say, you know what? I find this law to be unconstitutional and burdensome and pointless, and I will not convict someone of of a crime that I think shouldn't be a crime. That's what it's talking about. So your listeners should definitely look up jury nullification if they're not familiar with it. It's a really empowering thing to do, and it's a great way to really, you know, save someone's life potentially. Okay, next on the list I think is death penalty, which also can be not quite as polarizing as some other issues, but people have strong opinions about it. They do. And this is really simple. It says we oppose the administration of the death penalty by the state. So without getting into the morality of whether or not someone who murders someone or a whole bunch of people should be murdered, this simply says that we don't trust the government to implement the death penalty. And you can look through history and see many cases where the death penalty has been administered and the victim was later exonerated. I don't remember his name, but there was, you know, 
many years ago, a young black child, he was 13 or 14 years old, and he was the youngest person to be sentenced to the death penalty. And all of the stories, you know, and accusations were just fabricated and made up, you know, regarding the death of this, this older white woman. It was just, it was tragic. And it's because of things like that, that we just don't trust the government to implement the death penalty. Okay, but it's still on the table, just not by the state. Yeah, it's still on the table, but not by the state. You know, I, I, I don't know that I have it in me to tell a parent whose child has been murdered that you don't have the right to see the murderer, you know, put to the death, or you know, and have justice sought. I, I don't know that it's my place to say that, but I will say that I don't know the perfect way to implement that. I just know that the government can't be trusted to handle it. I'm glad you clarified that because I think, again, maybe a misunderstanding of the libertarian platform is that it's anti-death penalty, which it isn't necessarily. Absolutely. It's just, you know, we acknowledge that this is complicated and I don't know the perfect answer. And I think that's okay. I think that we don't always have to have the perfect answer for everything. But it's also okay to point out when something is clearly not working and say, hey, you, you know, we could try X, Y, or Z, but let's definitely not do this because it's failed and harmed so many people. Okay, what's next? Well, next up, we've got self-defense. I think this one is pretty simple. The only legitimate use of force is in defense of individual rights. So this is sort of a golden rule thing, right? Uh, don't hurt people. Don't steal from them. Don't hurt someone else's property. Treat other people how you want to be treated. If you're being bullied, we're not saying that you need to be a pacifist and just lay down and take a beating. You, you know, the only legitimate use of force is in defending yourself. So in this case, and this may bleed into some other topics, but who comes to the aid of someone that's in a situation like that? Oh, well, I think that you can definitely call on whoever you need to. You know, right now, unfortunately, we are set up with government-run police officers. And if you've got to call the cops because it's the only thing that you can do, you know, that's unfortunate, but that's, you know, that's what you're kind of stuck with right now. Generally, I don't call the police to defend me. Uh, that's that's a very, very last resort uh, option for me. And I think that most people should view it that way. And if we did and tried to take a little bit more of conflict resolution into our own hands and make it a community matter, we'd probably see a lot less violence and more accountability. So is this a good place to discuss the role of police in our lives or would that come up later? Oh, we could discuss that now. I mean, police, let's see, there's there's so many things that I would love to say about this. I think that the militarization of the police is really disturbing because that's not really, that doesn't speak of self-defense to me, Right. When I think about police gearing up for war and using using military equipment, I think about them going to war. And that sort of is a reflection on our foreign policy as well, right? Like, why are we, uh, why are we spread out all over the country sp- spreading democracy at the, at the end of a gun? I certainly don't want to see our police officers emulating that either. Police officers should definitely be there just to protect the rights of people who are being victimized, you know, or... Um, have experienced violence at the hands of someone else. I'm not really a gun guy. I'm not against guns or someone else having a gun. I'm just not into it myself. So whether it's someone breaks into my house or something like that, from a libertarian perspective, if I find myself on the other end of aggression and I need to defend myself, 
What does it look like for me? Oh, I believe that if someone breaks into your home to, to hurt you, it's the middle of the night. You don't know. They're, maybe they're just stealing your stuff. They're stealing your livelihood. Uh, you absolutely have the right to defend yourself. And you can defend yourself with a gun. And the only caution that I would take is to make sure that you're very aware of um, an experience with a firearm and know how to use one. And that you're also comfortable using that gun. Because there's definitely a psychological toll, you know, that's t- that's taken after shooting someone. But do you have a right to do it? Absolutely. That person does not have a right to break into your home, to steal your stuff, to put you at risk, you know, to harm you or your children, heaven forbid. Not even your cat or your dog. You totally have a right to defend yourself. So if I'm comfortable with relying on police to play that role in my own personal life, that's still on the table. Yeah, I think that that's entirely up to you. I would just caution you that the last time I had to call the police uh, over a potential break-in, they took 45 minutes to show up. (laughs) So, you know, we definitely need to work some kinks out in that system, which is why I think that if you're not comfortable using a gun, that's totally fine. You know, you might want to get more familiar with your neighbors and find other people that you can rely on to help you out if you're in an emergency. Okay, got it. So next up, we kind of shift into economic liberty. And this is one that I think is a real hot button topic right now because we've got so many uh, so many economic liberties at stake, actually. Really, you know, we want to spin this in the most positive light because it really is a positive, uh, liberating thing. And libertarians want all members of society to have abundant opportunities to achieve economic success. Well... We can't achieve economic success if we're being taxed to death to pay for things that we have never agreed to pay for. We believe in a free and competitive market uh, that allocates resources in the most efficient manner. So that means, you know, letting people buy and trade and, and sell things as they see fit. Each person has a right to offer goods and services to others on the free market. We don't believe that uh, government restrictions on the market are beneficial. And this is the part of the platform that I'm the most interested in because it's where most of my hot button issues lie. Sure. So let's look at property and contract. Um, Okay. So as respect for property rights is fundamental to maintaining a free and prosperous society, it follows that the freedom to contract to obtain, retain, profit from, manage, or dispose of one's property must also be upheld. So we just think that you should be able to enter into contracts however you want. Uh, I think that that's pretty simple. That's, you know, that's one of the first parts there. Uh, Libertarians would free property owners from government restrictions on their rights to control and enjoy their property as long as their choices do not harm or infringe on the rights of others. So do whatever you want on your property as long as you're not hurting someone else. Okay, so you have a big uh, factory on your property. Okay, you're keeping everything on your own property, right? Okay, so you're polluting a bunch of smog into the air that is causing immediate, uh, you know, cons- health health problems to your neighbors. And this does happen. I'm not talking about, oh, it's too many CO2 emissions and climate change, you know, maybe it's disputed. I mean, you're, you're just funneling, you know, low-hanging smog right into the neighborhood. That's not okay. Libertarians don't think that's okay. I definitely want to make sure that this is clear. We generally think that things like that should be... Uh, should be fought out in courts. And I'll tell you, as someone who works in the court system, 
if you go to court with an emergency like that, like someone's harming me, you can usually have an emergency hearing and have your, uh, your basically, we'll call it a short-term law term. It's a lawsuit. It's called a temporary restraining order. You can have that heard within 24 hours. So that's how libertarians would like to see those sort of uh, problems adjudicated. Otherwise, we want people to be free to do whatever they want to do, you know, on property that they own. Other than environmental, give me another example of something that may be happening on an adjacent property that someone might object to. Okay, so let's say that you're uh, you're hurting someone on your property, and you're trying to make the argument that it doesn't matter, you know, it's my property, I'll do whatever I want. Well, if you've got people enslaved on your property, if you've kidnapped kids and you're holding them hostage, things like that, if you're beating up on your wife or your spouse, uh, that's not okay. And I think that that is in in that respect that it's okay to yeah sadly you got to storm the gate and and do something about it. Uh, obviously, you know, and the way things are set up currently, people would be more, mostly inclined to call the police and notify law enforcement. Uh, and that's generally how those sort of things are handled. You know, in an ideal libertarian society, we would have private police who would not uh, escalate situations so much and kill people on on a whim. But I think that's another situation that's brought up pretty frequently. What about more local issues like zoning laws, building ordinances, signage restrictions, things like that? Those sort of issues, I think, are best decided at the community level. And if you move into a community, and I mean a small community, that has zoning laws and restrictions, you should probably be aware of them before you move in. And I think that that's part of personal responsibility. Zoning restrictions can definitely get out of control. I don't think there's a perfect libertarian solution to this problem, but I think that generally speaking, those sort of laws function best when they're when they're confined to small communities and even sections of the community. For example, if there's a historic old town area, everyone agrees, you know, we don't want giant neon signs. We want to preserve the integrity of this this area. I think that it's reasonable for the members of that community to make those sort of rules. Uh, I don't think that it's reasonable to put up a bunch of onerous uh, rules and regulations about what you can do on your residence. I think, uh, you know, if your neighbor is being obnoxious, and it happens, but it, honestly, it doesn't happen that often, uh, put up a privacy fence, you know, do what you can to sort of minimize contact with the annoying neighbor. Okay, I think this is this is a great opportunity to point something out that I'm realizing as we're having this conversation, which is, you know, libertarianism doesn't mean that the world at all levels is the wild, wild west. But instead, what we get to do is at the local level where where the people that are actually affected actually have a say in what goes and what doesn't go. So I think a, a really broad way of talking about it is there's a huge problem with a lot of federal mandates and laws at the federal level because even when you get down to then breaking it down to the state level, they don't apply or or they're it's manifested differently in each individual state because states are unique. Well, then you go down even to lower levels, whether it be county or cities or even small towns. Even those are affected within the same county differently than other towns. So to me, that's a big positive for the libertarian platform because the people that are specifically affected in a specific way get to decide what goes and how things are addressed. Libertarians, generally speaking, believe that hierarchies are just a natural you know, part of nature, like it's a natural order. And, and that means that rules are going to appear as, as well. 
we like rules. We're just not big on rulers, if that sort of makes sense. So it's not inconceivable to think that a group of libertarians and libertarian-leaning people would come together and say, you know, we want our community to sort of be like this. We'd prefer gas stations stay more on the edge of town. Uh, we're fine with fast food restaurants and entrepreneurship, but let's just not stick them in the heart of the historic core. You know, let's try to keep them two blocks out. These are normal things that, you know, the, the average, you know, normal law abiding, quote unquote, you know, not crazy person would be OK with because because these are sort of rules and laws that function to preserve things that you already enjoy and value. And libertarians aren't crazy people who hate everything. You know, we like our communities. We like things to look nice. We like things to be orderly. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it does. That's what I was saying is that, so it doesn't mean it's a completely unregulated society where, like I said, anything goes. It's just that the level that's most affected is the group of people that get to decide on it. And so there are going to be rules and, and restrictions and those types of things. That's a big, big mis- misconception about libertarianism is that there there are no regulations or rules or anything. And and, and they, f- they fear being in an environment or a society where anything goes. I mean, the fact that we're going through a platform that talks about what we do and don't stand for shows you right there that we definitely believe in having order, you know, in a quote unquote society. Right. All right. Well, let's move on to energy and resources. Sure. So it says, while energy is needed to fuel a modern society, government should not be subsidizing any particular form of energy. Well, that's pretty common sense, right? Because we want to keep government out of everything. So libertarians sometimes get a bad rap for backing fossil fuels. It's it's not that we're backing fossil fuels. We're, we don't believe that government should be subsidizing them. We just don't villainize them because we don't believe that other things should necessarily be uh, promoted by the government. We think the market should provide. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so another thing let's look at. Let's look at the Paris Accord, for example. It's this really, really uh, expansive, far-reaching piece of legislation, you know, that you're intended to pledge to on a global level to do X, Y, and Z to keep your energy emissions uh, down and try to meet these goals and these regulations and all of these, all of these things to have clean air and clean earth. But it doesn't look as though they're necessarily uh, taking into account the fact that some countries have not technologically advanced enough to implement a lot of green energy. Libertarians are not excited about pollution. We do not want to like rape the earth and cover it in black, you know, smog. But we do recognize that, generally speaking, across the world, as countries move up, as they become more technologically advanced, they sort of go through an industrial revolution. They create pollution. It sucks. It's not good. But then they realize that and they clean it up. And we've seen that happen across the board in a lot of countries. And so we're hopeful that that will continue to be the course um, in places like China and other developing nations that as they realize they're polluting their own garden, so to speak, they'll clean up their mess and that better sustainable, more energy, uh, greener energy, it's actually better for everyone involved. And there and there's money to be made in it too. So that's how we look at green energy, you know, under the scope of uh, having a, a clean earth for everyone. We do want what's best. Well, let me ask you about that because one of my criticisms on a handful, and, and you're gradually clearing each of these up, but one of my criticisms, and maybe other people share this, is that there's 
parts of this platform that just seem kind of idealistic and naive. I think that may be one of them because China is not showing any indication that they're going to change what they're doing that's that's polluting their own country. I think that they are not there yet uh, as far as as far as technological advances go with alternative energy. And I think that they're a little bit more honest about it than we are. And we do have government subsidies for wind and solar. We certainly have them for oil as well. But I think that Americans are also unfortunately a little bit naive about how advanced these technologies are. I think it's great that in spirit, we want to see them. We want to clean up the electric grid. You know, the electric grid is uh, 40% coal powered still. And we want to see these things happen but we're not necessarily realistic about the fact that we're not there yet. And I think China is unapologetic about where it's at with its technological levels. They are, they are going, you know, they're using some, some pretty dirty energy right now and they have some pretty bad, bad air, but I have seen them clean up other things and I have seen them move more towards free market principles, uh, especially with their, uh, with the way that they are engaging in commerce, you know, with other countries lately they definitely have really strict, you know, communist tendencies in a lot of areas of government. But with markets, they've adopted a more free market approach. So I'm hopeful that they'll do the same thing with energy because they'll see eventually that it just makes the most sense to not poison your own citizens with filthy air. Well, I guess my perception is that they don't really care. The Chinese government has never done anything to indicate that they're concerned about clean air. Yeah. And, and they made, they, I don't think they care as much as we do. I don't think they do. But they did eventually start to reverse their one child policy because they saw that it was damaging them. And I think that when they see a higher incidence of health issues in their, in their people, especially, you know, their government workers and people who are making the machine churn, then they'll be incentivized to start changing things. I wish that that incentive would happen sooner, but I think that that's sort of how it happened in the United States, too. We just seem to have a little bit of a different value base, and I think that that's uh, reflected, uh, or rather it's a result of our reverence for individualism and personal sovereignty. You know, we want people to have control over their bodies and be be well. So, you know, you could look at China's uh, slow adoption of green energy and and make that a criticism of some of the values that their government forces upon their people. Okay, let's get into one of my favorite areas, and that's government finance and spending. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. So libertarians get, uh, we get a bad rap, we get called uh, the monopoly man. Oh, oh, you just want people to die. Oh, you all kinds of absurd things. Maybe I'll dress as the monopoly man next Halloween. But the the platform says all persons are entitled to keep the fruits of their labor. We call for the repeal of the income tax, the abolishment of the IRS, and all federal programs and services not required under the U.S. Constitution. Okay, so let's break that down. We I'll just come right out and say it. We're opposed to taxation. You know, a very common phrase in the libertarian world is taxation is theft. People think, well, okay, that sounds good, but then... Who will care for for this person and who will care for that person? You know, widows and orphans, widows and orphans. That's the that's the common thing. You know, poor people, homeless people. Americans are actually really generous. I'm sure that you see GoFundMe's circulate on social media all the time. Kickstarters. We are very generous at Christmas. 
generally speaking, you know, uh, parents are generous with their children. We help our friends. People would be even more generous if they were not taxed to death. We don't believe that government is the best uh, is the best at implementing welfare policies either. We definitely care about poor people. We definitely want uh, people to be well. We don't, you know, you're born into this world in poverty. Maybe people don't think about it like that. But when you're born, you're born naked with nothing. Your parents own stuff, sure. Well, maybe, hopefully, right? But you don't come into this world with a sack of money. And libertarians definitely want to see people elevated out of poverty, but we don't believe that bureaucratic government spending is the way to do it. There is so much that falls under this umbrella. Abolishing the IRS, I'm assuming abolishing the Fed falls under this as well. Absolutely. Federal Reserve is a pet peeve. (laughs) Of course. So that eliminates who's currently monitoring U.S. monetary policy. And also, I want to address what appears to be a glaring omission. Under the libertarian platform, government is severely limited, but not gone completely. So it begs the question, if you eliminate all forms of taxation, how does it generate the necessary revenue to perform the select number of responsibilities you've assigned to it? Well, um, it says right here in the platform that we want to appeal... We want to repeal the income tax. That was an amendment that was passed, uh, and it's questionable. That's a that's a deep dive for another time, and, and abolish the IRS, which has not existed in perpetuity. It, 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 you know, it was not created by the Constitutional Convention, and federal programs and services not required under the U.S. Constitution. So, as much as I cringe at it, uh, and I do cringe, there is limited taxation that's allowed by the United States Constitution. And what the Libertarian Party would like to see happen is for us to return to that. Now, if we can get past that, if we can go no taxes and make it voluntary, that would be wonderful. Because do you think that people would actually contribute, you know, to their local representative salary when the guy is actually going to Washington and doing work? Yes, of course. Because we're we're a generous country. We do contribute to people who we feel are, you know, need the money, who are down on their luck who are working hard too. So I don't think that you would just see, oh, everything just disappeared overnight and now it's chaos. Things will still get funded. They just get funded voluntarily, as they already do, quite honestly. Okay, so a couple of questions there. And, and not, not to induce a complete snooze fest with the audience, but because I don't want to do a deep dive into the Constitution, but what are just a couple of examples of taxation that's allowed under the Constitution? The Constitution allows for a postal service, and the Constitution allows for taxation to pay for the salaries of elected representatives. Okay. There's a couple off the top of my head. It does not talk a lot about taxes for the military because the military is referred to as state-led militias and that their voluntary uh, conscription is not mentioned uh, early in the Constitution. But there's, there's just a couple right off the top of my head. It also talks about, oh, courts uh, and bankruptcy. So you would, need, uh, you would need contributions to be made for that, and that could be made through taxes. I'm going to push back on that and say that voluntary taxation seems a tad idealistic. I don't think you're going to get buy-in from most people on that. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not in favor of an income tax. However, another solution I've heard suggested by libertarians is a value-added tax. What are your thoughts on that? I definitely have. That was something that Andrew Yang pushed. For people who say that voluntary taxation doesn't sound 
you know, feasible. It sounds made up. I, I get it. But I would remind you that every year in California, the citizens of California vote to tax themselves more every single year. <laughs> so there are some people who are just in love with paying their taxes. So don't worry, you know, like we, we tax ourselves into oblivion and most of us do it quite happily, you know, myself accepted. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm not volunteering for that. If someone says, give me some of your income and, and just hand it over, I'm just going to be transparent here and say, I'm not going to do that. No, you'll be getting the minimum donation from me. But if the government isn't robbing me blind to pay, you know, for useless bureaucratic roles and endless wars against the, you know, overseas, I'd, I'd probably be a lot more inclined to write a small check to my local representative. Uh, I would be like, wow, my tax burden has gone down uh, 60%. Yes, here you go. Thank you so much for your hard work. Keep up the good job. Okay, so that rolls nicely into a couple other things that I don't think we have to spend too much time on. One is government shouldn't incur debt. I have no problem with that. Pass a balanced budget amendment. Clearly, I have no problem with that. I, I remember fondly in the mid-90s, somehow Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich came to a consensus and actually did pass a balanced budget amendment. Even in my teen years, I knew that that was impressive and was ha happy to hear that. You know, raising taxes, you know, meeting that balanced budget by cutting expenditures, not additional taxes, all of that makes sense. Would it not be a, a, an acceptable solution to maybe do something like a very, very low flat tax? I think that that would be, I don't know if I would call it a solution, but I would call it a compromise. Okay. Because the, the tax code is incredibly complicated. So I work in I work in litigation. Uh, I do a lot of real estate uh, law and also constitutional law. And I would love to get into tax law. You've got to have in California, I believe, an LLM. You have to have like an extra level of um, in your in your juris doctor, your your law degree to practice tax law. Tax law is so complex. And if we can make that a little bit easier to digest, I think everyone will benefit. So I won't spend too much time on this, but what I would propose, because I agree with you, the tax code is way too complicated. It's too complicated for honest people to to navigate. It's too complicated because it allows other people to cheat on their taxes. It's just problematic. The IRS is unnecessary. I agree with that. The government knows what you make. And so I don't know why they can't just, you can't just designate an account. You put money in that account. You don't fill out any paperwork they just send you an email, you hit a, a confirmation button or something, and the money comes out of the account voluntarily, you make that happen, you push the button, and you pay your flat tax. There, there's no filing taxes, there's no, none of this complicated stuff that we go through every year. Yeah, and, and honestly, there are European countries that do that. I don't agree with the burden of uh, taxes that they make pay, but they at least make the process easier, and I can appreciate that part. Over here, so you work really hard and then you have to fill out a form to guess at how much money that you owe the government or the government owes you. And so then you send it in and it may or may not be wrong, but the government won't tell you what it is unless you have made a mistake that is uh, not in their favor and then they'll tell you. That seems just like absurd and a huge waste of time and probably taxpayer money too. Like why did we have to pay to put up such a stupid process. Okay, the next section under government employees, is this talking about Social Security or is it covering something entirely different? This is a little bit different. Okay, so it says, we favor repealing any requirement that one must join or pay dues to a union 
as a condition of government employment. In California, for example, and I believe actually across the entire nation, teachers unions for public schools are one of the top three most powerful unions, I believe, in the whole country. They definitely are in California. Uh, and so California, in, in California, if you are a teacher at a public school, you have to join the union. That doesn't seem right to me. That seems like it is absolutely rife for corruption. And it is. So union dues, you know, and, and taxpayer money gets all sort of mixed up in the same stew. And then you you have to pay money to people who lobby and advocate for bigger government. And so as a libertarian, and if you're a public school teacher, you're in a really uncomfortable position. And I just don't think that's right for multiple reasons. Yeah, my understanding from reading the platform is that groups of employees can certainly voluntarily form a union if they want to, but people don't have to be compelled to join. Right, right. Compulsory unions are not good, and they're especially not good if it's for a government job. Okay, so I mentioned Social Security. Obviously, you wouldn't advocate for Social Security. It's left up to the individual to provide for their own savings and retirement. And that makes sense. That's consistent with the platform. I I guess there's just, I think that's one of the other overarching criticisms of of the platform is, is everyone's on their own, but not everyone's really capable or has the resources. There's a perception that they need the government to play a role in their life where they're providing things that they can't provide for themselves. So there's a couple of things I would say about this. And one I would say is that we believe the role of the government is to defend your rights, not provide you with a safety net. And I know that sounds harsh, but let's look a little bit further back in history before government regulation and Social Security start meddling with everything. There used to be a lot of local organizations that people would join for very nominal fees or sometimes for no fee that provided uh, help and basically very low cost insurance for people who fell on bad times. So if let's say you're a, you're, you're a stay at home mom as was, you know, the norm 50 to 150 years ago, and your husband dies, the father of your three children. Your your husband had paid into, at a very low cost, a different type of insurance that was like a life insurance policy or a policy through his work that if he died, you know, he you would be taken care of. These weren't just, there were community organizations that did this too, and it, a lot of them were really pushed by immigrant communities because this was just a cultural practice that people had. Another point that I would make is that people think they don't have the money to invest. And a lot of that's because you're already taxed to death. You, you don't have another dollar to spare because you're getting, you know, up to 30, 40% of your paycheck taken away in income tax and other taxes and taxes that you pay at the grocery store and taxes that you pay at the pump, uh, taxes that you pay on your small business. When you remove those impediments to savings, you'll see people are able to and they're motivated to save more. Well, according to a 2019 article in Forbes magazine, about 47% of people pay zero income tax. So that's a hard argument to make regarding those people. Now, that doesn't apply to taxes paid at the gas pump, the sales tax, etc. But is that a nominal amount? Because they're not paying income taxes. Well, a lot of those people are sadly living off of taxes too. And I absolutely believe, and you know, it's part of the Libertarian Party's uh, platform that, that that's government spending then and taxing that shouldn't be happening. 
welfare entitlements are not beneficial. And we should absolutely remove that, um, incentivize people to work, incentivize people to invest properly so that when they do fall on hard times, someone is there, you know, they have a, they have a safety net, but it should not be produced by the government. And generally speaking, private services provide, uh, you know, they do a better job than the government does too. So would private welfare exist? Absolutely. And it did exist through community organizations and through churches before government stepped in and started providing it um, for everyone. Moving on to the next few things. Under the heading of money and financial markets, what stood out to me was free market banking with unrestricted competition. That's consistent with the platform, but what we've seen in recent history is that unregulated banks have resulted in giant banks. Beyond that, what about monopolies in general? Aren't those more common in an unregulated environment? And what about the giant tech companies? Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of background knowledge on this because I've done bank regulation uh, litigation for so long. Okay. um, Monopolies come into existence through the power of cronyism and government regulations. You do not see monopolies come to power and exist uh, independent of government regulation. Government enables it. Because what happens is companies get really large and then they get in bed with government and they say, we need you, you know, government will maybe pretend to say, oh, we've got to pass these laws to keep uh, companies from getting really big like this. And they pass these nightmarish regulations, you know, the the acts that were passed after the financial collapse of 2008 are monstrous. It's, it's like difficult to read in a lifetime. And it makes it impossible for smaller other competitive firms to join in. And so what it does is it pushes other people out of the market. There's less competition. And then, sure, maybe the government goes and they continually have a fight to break up the two or three largest companies, but that's because they have created those giant monsters and given them all kinds of protection so that you don't have a choice as a consumer and you can't create a choice as an entrepreneur. Regulatory problems are the problem. It's called regulatory capture. You're seeing the same thing happen with big tech companies, Google, Twitter, Facebook. There are a lot of regulatory uh, barriers right now that, you know, Google can pay to play. They can pay to influence uh, lawmakers with lobbying. They can pay fines, too. In the 90s, we saw this happening with telecom companies like MCI, which probably no one remembers, and AT&T. So... I don't know why the government does it, but we sort of repeat the same cycle over and over again as we go through different industries. I know you had some other questions with that too, though. Unrestricted competition among banks too. Let me talk about that a little bit. Okay, so it's really hard to be to become a bank and get FDIC insured and you know check every check all the boxes off the to do list, right? So we don't get as many options. What would it look like if you had unrestricted competition among banks? Well, you would have a lot of rating systems so that people would know what a good bank is and isn't. And by the way, we have them already in place, things like Yelp. Uh, Those sort of rating systems would exist. So you wouldn't necessarily need government regulation to figure out if a bank was a good bank or a bad bank. And you would also see specialization, which we have now, but you would see it far more advanced. So you would probably see more banking that was geared towards low-income communities, which right now 
mostly rely on things like check into cash. And you would see banking that is specialized in investment and, uh, you know, people who have a lot of money, they're not going to put their bank in something that's not insured. When you have that much money, you generally make uh, informed decisions about how you're investing in it. So unrestricted competition would, would actually make banking a lot more accessible to, uh, to a lot more people. Moving on to this, the section under marketplace freedoms makes sense. Free markets, no government bailouts. I get all that. Next on the list after that, the platform calls for no occupational licenses or certifications except by voluntary associations. Libertarians aren't saying they don't exist, but that they are handled by the private marketplace. Now, I don't care if the person that cuts my hair is licensed, but when it comes to more important things like doctors, unless you can explain a better option, I want my doctor to be licensed or go through some sort of vetting process so that I know he's not going to kill me. So I can, I can talk about this from, from a couple of different perspectives. So I've worked in uh, litigation for 11 years. I am a paralegal. I'm not an attorney. I specialize in trial prep. I go to trial. I help attorneys who are a little bit inexperienced. I do all of the work for them. And they literally read what I say off of cue cards. This is, this is something that I do. Does that sound outrageous to you? Uh, well, it should and it shouldn't because licensure does not... Um, it's not indicative of competency or experience. So there are a lot of attorneys out there who sadly are grossly incompetent at their job and they need someone like me to hold their hand and do their job for them. I am not licensed to practice law. I can practice law in a limited scope in administrative court, which I do. But in regular court, you know, government courts, I can't do it. Uh, would you prefer to have me, who have been doing this for 11 years, and I've worked with some of the best trial attorneys in the country and cut my teeth, you know, helping out inexperienced people? Or would you prefer someone who has got the certification but is terrible and they just managed to pass the bar on the sixth time? Like, you're going to prefer me, right? But, you know, too bad. Occupational licensing precludes it. Um, and the same thing, you know, goes with doctors. I... I have Crohn's disease and I've had surgery a whole lot on my GI tract. And I don't just like go on any reference by a doctor just because they have a degree. I, I need to look them up and see, you know, what's your experience? Uh, what do people say about you? And that's how free market certification and, uh, you know, word of mouth and trust building in the marketplace would work. I would say that if you're just going to, you know, pay someone to cut you open, like, geez, you know, that, like that you're not showing very good judgment. See, I knew you'd have an answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so this next issue is definitely a hot button issue. And this has been in the news lately and could be changing very soon. Let's talk about the minimum wage. Oh, sure. California has really high minimum wage. The, the rates are climbing all over the country. So I think minimum wage might be, it's around $13. It's 13, maybe thirteen seventy-five, and it's up to 15 in the, in the densely, in the most densely populated areas. So you're a small business owner, you work from home, you need someone to, to, uh, to manage your online store or something else of that nature. You need someone to answer phone calls. And you can afford an employee, one employee, for a certain number of hours. 
uh, and then you find out, oh, $15 an hour, also with payroll taxes, also with this, also with that, and I have to pay for that. Uh, you crunch the numbers, you find out that you can only afford to pay someone $14 an hour. You have now lost the ability to run your store efficiently, and someone else has lost out on the opportunity to make $14 an hour. Maybe it is a 17-year-old who is stuck doing schooling from home right now because of the pandemic, and they have pretty flexible hours and their parents are okay with it. They'd be happy to take $14 an hour as their first job. Uh, you're okay with it. Their family's okay with it. The community's okay with it. But the government is not. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So really, just in summary, the problem with the minimum wage really at any level is that just look at it as just any input into a business. The higher the cost of it is, the less you can use of that input. In this case, it's a person. And the fact of the matter is, there's a couple of facts here. One is, there are people that are willing to work for less than minimum wage, but they can't. And depending on what the state of the economy is, you would actually see a decrease in unemployment if people could work for less. Is there anything else you'd say about that? I would also say that, you know, like unemployment rates right now, and, you know, especially regarding minimum wage, they're not even accurate because it doesn't even show the people who've just left the job market. A lot more teenagers used to have part-time jobs. And since minimum wage has increased dramatically, there are less teenagers who are able to get those jobs because there are more low-skilled um, workers who are fighting over their jobs now. So, you know, instead you see more adults working at fast food restaurants. When those sort of jobs used to pay less and employ kids and, you know, teach them how to how to manage their money and how to show up to work on time and, you know, McDonald's is not uh, a career job for most people. And I think that's okay. You know, like we don't have to necessarily tiptoe around that. I worked at McDonald's when I was 15. I certainly wasn't going to make it my career, but it was my first job and it was really cool. And, you know, I made, I don't know, $7 and 50 cents an hour, but I was really happy to get that for about six months until I went and got a better job. And we're seeing that sort of pattern disappear from the marketplace of jobs. And, and it's just unfortunate because it sets everyone back. I think there's a huge misconception here because the percentage of people actually working at the minimum wage has dramatically decreased over recent decades. Also, on average, the data shows if you start at minimum wage, you don't stay there very long. You fairly quickly pick up additional skills, making you more valuable, and you either get paid more at your existing job or you leave and go somewhere that values you appropriately. Do I have that right? Absolutely. You know, I want, I want people to achieve their full potential. I want people to progress in their careers and in self-fulfillment and to feel, you know, more fulfilled at their jobs than just sticking at a minimum wage job for their entire life. And I think that it's sort of a bigotry of low expectations thing to assume that people need a, a living wage paying minimum wage job let's think better about humanity and of our peers than to think so-and-so is going to be stuck, you know, flipping burgers for the next 10 years of their lives. So we better make sure they're, you know, taken care of. Let's not think that about people. That's an interesting way to put it. Okay. We touched on this earlier, but I wanted to expand on it. Let's talk about the poor. You're confident that the best way to take care of the neediest part of our population is through community and private organizations. Absolutely. Private organizations already exist and they do a whole lot, you know, on a 
at another time, I'd love to go into the problem of what I call the homeless industrial complexes, which which is that we have too many of these organizations and some of them are very top heavy. But people are very passionate about this this topic. People devote their lives to it. There are churches that do outreach every single day, uh, taking meals to the people in Skid Row. It's almost impossible to go hungry in Skid Row in Los Angeles because there's an abundance of food by people who are very caring. Uh, I used to do a lot of outreach with the homeless community in downtown Los Angeles. And I was on the, I worked with a group uh, of a, it was a coalition group of grassroots organizations and small nonprofits. We had a a wealthy person who was just going to gift us with several million dollars to build a shelter for homeless people. Government actually got in the way and said, we don't want another shelter built. Jeez. We could go on and on, you know, down that rabbit hole about why they did that and all of the government problems. But I really want to emphasize that the the, the spirit of of giving and, and compassion is there in, in humanity and, and in our communities. And we would absolutely take care of people if government safety nets disappeared, you know. This next one is a huge topic. What do you want to say about health care? Healthcare should absolutely be a free market system. A lot of people like to point to Scandinavian uh, policies and say, oh, we should have healthcare like them. It's paid for. It's free. It's not free. It's paid by taxpayers. They have far less regulations. We have a ton of regulations, and that is terrible. We also have a lot of really important innovations, and you don't see that necessarily across the board in other countries. We also don't have crazy wait times. And once you start regulating healthcare to death and making it all provided by the government, you see wait times increase and people leave uh, more socialist universal healthcare countries to come here to get their healthcare when they really need it. Because a lot of things are emergencies and you need to get it taken care of right away. So regarding the free market and the cost and things of that nature, if you look at plastic surgery, and optometry. These are two areas of healthcare that are the least regulated. They are also the most affordable. You can go in, something is not covered by insurance. It's a few thousand dollars. You can pay for it. You can get a payment plan. You can get it privately financed through something that's sort of like a credit card set up just for that purpose. There are a lot of options and they want you to get these procedures. They want you to get your glasses and your eye exam. So they make sure that you can afford it and get it taken care of. Because ultimately they want your business, so they want to facilitate that. I would love to see healthcare start to uh, look more like that, uh, specialized and less regulated and affordable. One of my biggest issues with healthcare, and I'm experiencing this right now, is that it's the only thing that human beings in the United States consume where you don't know what it costs until you've consumed it. Yeah, absolutely. I um. The last, uh, I was in the hospital last year. It's, a, you know, a recurring nightmare for me. And there was a little uh, screw up when I was leaving. They didn't bill my insurance. And I got a bill in the mail for $32,000. I was in the hospital for four days, three nights. I had one procedure done under anesthesia. It wasn't a major surgery. It was like an exam and some, you know, experimental steroid injections. I had IVs. I had blood work done. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. $32,000 for for a procedure that was 
that took about 15 minutes. And the rest of the time I was really just hanging out in a hospital bed with a wait and see, you know, sort of approach that it just, it made no sense. Thankfully my insurance covered it, but I thought, well, that's, that kind of sucks for them too. You know, and, and we had no idea how much it would cost. You know, no one could tell me it's just nonsense. Well, I mean, the, the good news from your perspective is that the insurance company covered it, but the fact that they covered it means that your insurance is going to be more expensive. Oh, my insurance is exorbitantly expensive. Yeah, I, I pay over $400 a month Well, I'm one person. Before we move on to the last section of the platform, let's talk about something that I think will help sum up this section. A lot of what we've talked about under economic liberty can probably be digested by anyone that's middle class or above. But for the lower class, I still think you may have some saying, I'm just not sure I have the resources to navigate life in a libertarian world. And let's maybe talk about education here, because where I live, we pay property school taxes that cover the cost of public schools. So let's look at this through the lens of a single parent with multiple children. They're likely renting and not paying property taxes. And for all the criticisms of public schools, that person is potentially saving a lot of money by getting a free education. What does the world look like for them under the libertarian platform where they now have to bear that cost themselves? Well, I think that India is a really great example of uh, free market education being provided to low-income people. In the slums of India, and I don't say that uh, in a derogatory way, I mean it just in a factual way, there are slums. Uh, Kids live in very rudimentary houses, you know, in the United States we'd think of it more as a shack. And they pay to go to private school. And they pay very little. These are very low costs that that very poor people can afford. And it's made possible because education has been radically uh, deregulated over there, at least in those areas, so that these small schools pop up by independent teachers, people who want to go to work. They don't get paid if they don't show up to school. And they have smaller class sizes and they educate students. And it's really great because these are, especially for girls, because in India, you know, the education system and the, you know, the culture in general is, it's not really, it's not really in favor of girls being educated. It's a, they don't really empower women. Um, You know, I don't usually bang that drum, but in India, it's a real problem. And having radically uh, deregulated public schooling options. Uh, They're private schools, but, you know, they're open to the public has been really great for everyone. These they're they're affordable, too, because they have almost no overhead. You know, it's a handful of teachers running something on their own, making their own decisions, you know, and they're just emulating other models. So it doesn't take a lot of work necessarily to get started. Seeing something like that happen in the United States would be great. And churches used to provide things like this as well. So I'd like to see that happen again. Charter schools, too. Let's take a more pragmatic approach. Charter schools are way less expensive. And uh, you have to get into them sometimes in the United States via lottery. But they have far less bureaucracy and administrative oversight. And uh, if they do bad, if they do poorly, they get shut down, which is great. Because teachers, I don't believe, should have tenure forever and ever if they're doing a bad job. And that's definitely something that a lot of single parents, uh, especially in low-income areas, are struggling to get their children into when public schools fail them. Who determines whether or not a school is doing a good job or not? Uh, well, you know, right now the the government testing sort of determines that, but there are often no uh, 
no repercussions for failing in public schools. These schools just stay open. And, you know, I got a lot to say about public schools. Public schools are like literal prisons for children. They are often one of the only places where children will experience violence in their young lifetimes. Bullying, fights with school, law enforcement, uh, totalitarian teachers who enact punishment on kids and say that they have ADD just because they squirm from being, you know, made to sit in an uncomfortable desk for 45 minutes to an hour at a time. That's my son, by the way. Right. And, and it's normal behavior for a lot of kids that I don't find it unusual that a small energetic child would need to move around in a seat and not sit still for practically, you know, six hours in a row. Public schools are not all they're cracked up to be. Uh, we get a lot of lobbying by the teachers union because they want to keep their jobs and they want to keep their high paying, you know, well pensioned jobs. And a lot of the time it's at the expense of students. And I think that if we took a look at education from a child first perspective, not from a teacher pers- first perspective or a uh, administrator first perspective, we would start to see some radical changes in education. So in a libertarian environment, how is it determined if a school is working or not? Oh, parents and students would be the ones determining that. You know, Teachers would definitely have some input because they're the ones teaching the students, but ultimately it needs to be in the hands of the consumer. And I think as a parent, if you're paying attention, which you should be, You'll know if your kids are able to read and write and, and do math. You know, you're looking you're looking over their homework a little bit and seeing what's going on. You're asking kids what they learned in school today. So I think that it's really easy to tell if the school is doing well. Is your kid getting bullied every day and coming home crying? Is anyone doing anything about it? You know, uh, does your child, are they getting taught subjects that they're interested in? You know, is there an arts program? And if not, is there something you can pursue afterwards? Is the school able to make those sort of changes, music, athletics, really easy to tell if something is doing well. And uh, it's sort of the elephant in the room right now that public schools are, you know, they churn out these, you know, abysmal failure rates, and we just keep pumping and funneling more money into them. It's, It's just tragic. I'm not advocating for this, but without a unified standard, how do you know before they get to college if a student is well educated or not? Well, I think that you can look at someone's reading uh, reading comprehension level and their writing and things that they've been working on and figure out if they're well-educated. Uh, this is something actually that I come across at work all the time as I work with uh, other legal professionals who they've been to public school, they've been to university, they've graduated, they've got the piece of paper, and they still can't write very well. And it is just disturbing to me that people can make it through 16 years of education and they can't form a sentence. I, you know, watch out when you hire an attorney. But that is something that happens when people attend public school. Last thing on education. Again, looking through the lens of the single parent who might have multiple jobs, just doesn't have the support or bandwidth to be as involved as a parent would need to be in what you described. What does it look like for them? Um, to be involved, I think that you could probably, as a parent, prioritize and make time to look over your children's homework and talk to them about their education, if that's what you mean, even if it's just five, ten minutes a day. That's the picture I'm trying to paint here is this person is working two jobs. They're exhausted. They don't really have the energy or bandwidth. They'd like to. It's not for lack of desire. They just don't have the luxury. They barely have a few minutes. 
obviously their children aren't going to get the necessary attention and would be at a disadvantage in this environment. Well, I think that's why it's important that we provide better options for schooling. And uh, I don't expect that parents who are exhausted are going to be able to, you know, nail it every day. I understand that it's difficult. But I do think that that parents generally will, if, if they care, they'll make it a priority to check in as often as they can. Even if you're not able to sit down at dinner with your kids, you know, you can still, you know, maybe on the weekends go over some homework stuff and try to get an idea of what's going on. I don't think that's too much to ask. Okay, so moving on to the last section of the platform, I think most of the hot button issues, and and you can correct me if that's not true, for most people lie in the first two sections of the platform. Not that there aren't unimportant issues under securing liberty. I don't think we have to go into those in as much depth. So maybe just a summary. First, it provides for a military. That's fine. I don't think that's debatable. I I think we're, we're... it starts to become a conversation is kind of foreign policy or the libertarian stance on on the role of the military or defense of the United States. Because like many other things, libertarians believe in a very limited view of, of our role in the international landscape. It makes me happy that this has become less controversial because that means that people are starting to understand libertarian foreign policy and see the merits of it a little bit more. Um, and so I'm optimistic But libertarians, uh, you know, we are the anti-war party. It doesn't mean that we're the anti-military party. We believe that the military budget is way, you know, way overbloated. It needs to be scaled back. Libertarians believe that, you know, the military is here to defend, to defend the country. You know, we defend our own soil. And there's definitely some nuance to defending your allies and making allies, but we're definitely not defending them or helping them out or helping ourselves out be more secure by having military bases all over the world. I think we have, you know, over 700 military bases at this time. That's, that's pretty insane, you know, all over the world. Uh, and the Libertarian Party would definitely like to scale that back. So my one question there is, you mentioned allies, but if you're not willing to get involved then how do you have allies at all? Or how do you not alienate them? And then what do you do to prevent hostile governments and terrorists from just running roughshod over the planet, basically? Realistically, you know, we're not looking at libertarian utopia. We're looking at how we engage in the real world. I think that it's absolutely okay to have allies and you need to be very careful about who you are allies with and what you will back them on. What we're seeing right now in most parts of the world, right, most parts of the world is that we're not engaged in, uh, we're, they're not engaged in a crazy war. War has actually been on the decline, believe it or not, throughout human civilization. We're doing really well right now. I wish that we were not bombing people with drone strikes and engaging in regime change as much as we are. But overall, globally, things are on the up and up. Uh, Defending someone nowadays can look a lot different than it did 200 years ago. So just knowing that the United States is someone's ally and that they are there to back, you know, someone up if you try to wage war on them is quite a deterrent. And I think that that's how it should be. The next section is about the intelligence community, which is provided for under the libertarian platform. Is there anything you want to say about that? 
you know, we talked a little bit about the NSA earlier. I think that it's totally acceptable, you know, we're living in the real world to have an intelligence community to detect and to counter threats to domestic security that doesn't need to involve spying on citizens. And we definitely shouldn't engage in things like waterboarding and torture, you know, aggressive interrogation tactics and things like that. Uh, Because as the platform says, like those things shouldn't take priority over the maintenance of the civil liberties of our citizen. And we shouldn't suspend the Constitution or the Bill of Rights during wartime. That's sort of what the Patriot Act does. So that's really what this is speaking to. It's that we need to preserve our rights and we need to not trample all over the rights of other people across the world. I don't want to bore people with talks about tariffs and free trade. (laughs) Obviously, libertarians believe in open and free trade with other countries. I don't think that's a big issue to most people. I think one thing that is, though, is immigration. My understanding is that the libertarian platform believes in open borders and no restrictions on immigration. Do I have that wrong or what would you say on that? You have that mostly right. There is a lot of nuance when we talk about open borders. So I know that that phrase is very triggering to people. So let me sort of explain that open borders means different things to different people. The platform says we support the removal of government impediments to free trade And political freedom and escape from tyranny demand that individuals not be necessarily, not be unreasonably constrained by government in the crossing of political boundaries. So what this means is that we believe people should be able to move freely across the border if they're not, you know, violent, uh, confirmed terrorists, things of that nature. It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be border safety checks. It doesn't mean that, uh, you come across the border and you get citizenship, it doesn't mean that you come across the border and you vote. We like to pin immigration, uh, we like to frame it more in the lens of free trade, that people have been coming historically here to work and better themselves and better their lives, and we like to uphold those values. Does that make a little bit of sense? Yeah, I think so. I think we've covered everything that might would be said under rights and discrimination or self-determination. Is there anything you would say on those? Uh, You know, I think that we've mostly covered it. It's that, you know, libertarianism, I'll say that libertarianism really embraces and upholds the individual. And with respect to racism, sure, you can hold, you know, nasty views like that and technically qualify as a libertarian. But when you're acting in that sort of way, that is really one of the lowest basis forms of collectivism. And that is something that we reject. You know, we don't reject thinking that way, uh, discriminating against people based on their race, gender, things like that. Can you, can you do mental gymnastics and make some sort of uh, argument that you could hold those views as a libertarian? Well, sure, you could hold a lot of, you know, repugnant views. But can you act on them or base your community or civilization or, you know, your libertarian society on it? No, that that falls apart. So I I definitely want to stress that libertarians are not uh, people who embrace racism or discrimination. When it comes to discrimination in general, everyone discriminates, right? And uh, because you, you use your best judgment, that's really what discrimination is. So whenever you hear libertarians talk about discrimination, we're really talking more about discernment. You know, use your best judgment with who you want to associate with, what businesses you want to uh, 
extend your business towards and obviously, you know, who you want to vote for in government. I'm going to use an example of something that I think falls under this umbrella. There was the bakery that didn't want to bake a wedding cake for the gay couple. And obviously it was very controversial. So in that instance, would a libertarian say both parties should respect each other's views? There doesn't need to be a big fight about it. And there's probably another bakery that doesn't mind and would be happy to bake them a cake. Yeah, I think so. And I'd also like to point out, I mean, wouldn't you want to know who to avoid if a if a bakery or any organization says we don't want to do business with XYZ people? I would probably just prefer to not go there. Right. You know that in today's right. environment, you know, with Yelp reviews and social media and call out culture, like you probably don't need uh, I don't think the government could do a worse job than than savage cancel culture on canceling a business for something like that. You know, I don't want to seek revenge. I just want to do business with people who share my values. And generally, most businesses are going to be forced to adapt to changing social norms if they want to survive. So if some business wants to have some, you know, ridiculous uh, bigoted policy and really flaunt it, and I'm not saying that the bake the cake people were bigots, by the way. A little bit of nuance on that is they were happy to bake a cake but they didn't want it to be a uh, a wedding cake, you know, with quote unquote gay stuff on it. But they were not denying those people business. It was just a very limited scope. But but generally speaking, you know, if you are going to be a bigot and a jerk, uh, you're not going to stay in business for very long because it's just not going to work out for you because because it just doesn't work out. That's not realistic, you know, in the free market of ideas. Okay, I think the only thing left in the platform actually is something we skimmed over a little too quickly at the very beginning, and that was we we didn't really touch on the role that's being played by the Food and Drug Administration and protection of, of things that we consume. Now that we've had this whole conversation, I think I know what you're going to say, but how do we know that the prescriptions or the food and, and stuff that we consume is is safe to do so? Oh, I bet you do know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I do, I do, but I want to make sure we cover it. Sure. So supplements, thankfully, are largely unregulated, which means they are less expensive and you can get them really quickly. Uh, I take a ton of supplements because I have Crohn's disease. It's it's active. It Basically, my body's uh, immune system sort of attacks itself. I'm prone to a lot of infections and things of that nature. Uh, when I have to take antibiotics, it creates a myriad of horrible side effects. And so I try to avoid it. And in order to avoid it, I've got to take supplements. And if I had to wait and get a prescription, every single supplement, it would be a nightmare. It would be insane. I really love any free market aspect of my healthcare, And I believe that removing the FDA would just be a huge boon to, you know, just the, the wellness, the health and, you know, like the stability of the American population. The FDA is just terrible. So let's talk a little bit about uh, whether or not their licensing and uh, and laws and so forth are effective and keep us safe, right? Most people probably haven't heard of Biox. Maybe you have. There were some crazy whistleblower lawsuits uh, several years ago about Biox. I know one of the whistleblowers. Her name is Brandy Vaughn. She is a medical freedom activist. And she was a Vioxx salesperson and found out it was killing people. Uh, the FDA did not care. You know, it had already passed their trials, so whatever. It took a tremendous amount of social pressure 
to get the FDA uh, to really look into this and, and investigate it and make it illegal. So do they always keep us safe? No. And uh, do they hold things up and make unnecessary uh, delays in getting stuff to market? Absolutely. Okay, so I've gotten to the point in my life where I have to be really careful about what I eat. And I guess we could argue whether or not the information is reliable, but food labels have become really important to me. Talk about that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Me too. I'm vegan and I've been vegan for... 15 years. So I care a lot about uh, food labels. I know people think that's weird. Like, you're a vegan and a libertarian? I thought, well, yeah, let me just cut you off right there. I I live in LA. So, you know, (laughs) some of my stereotypes don't add up. (laughs) But uh, food labels are important. And in California in, was it 2014? We had a big uh, movement to try to get genetically modified food labeled. It's really important to me. Because of my gastrointestinal issues, uh, I find that genetically modified food creates what's called a flare. It increases my inflammation and makes me sick. And sadly, you know, for for those of us who cared about it, the government bill passed. You know, the libertarian perspective is that the government shouldn't be forcing labels on stuff. What's great, though, is that the free market realized that there was a real demand for that. And so... There, there is a GMO rating system that's very aggressively followed in California. And so you get a lot of really good uh, voluntary self-reporting and other watchdog companies who put labels on things. Um, let's contrast that with uh, some, some other government labels for food or some guides. We've got the atrocious food guide pyramid. That definitely hasn't served anybody uh, very well as far as I can tell. So do I want labeling? Yes, but I prefer it be done by the free market. Okay. So you think that that would be done voluntarily and we'd have the information that we needed? Oh, yeah. And it's already done voluntarily. You know, we already get the information we need. If the government removed nutrition facts uh, as a requirement, you would see probably a handful of companies drop off. What you would probably see more of is people keeping it exactly the same and people volunteering to improve it uh, to try to get their market, you know, their product better positioned in the market. I, I love seeing when people have added things to the nutrition facts that aren't necessarily required. Like on the back of a, like a multivitamin supplements, you can see everything that's listed that's not just uh, a typical vitamin and mineral. The phytonutrients they've added, you know, from, you know, quote unquote superfoods and, you know, the percentage of uh, green powder that's in a vitamin, things like that. So companies do it, you know. They'll do it anyway because they want to get your business and they want to convince you to buy their product. So that's a walk through the platform. And my original plan was, I was that, that's where I was going to start kind of my critique or, or concerns about it. But we've kind of done that as we've walked through it. So instead, what I want to do as we wrap up our time is I want to kind of go through a checklist instead. So to me, the bases that need to be covered from someone that's listening to this or trying to figure out if they want to adopt this political view, is they want to know if their needs are covered. They want to know if it's consistent with their beliefs and values. They want to know if there's consequences for bad actors. For those that do care, and I, th- I think it probably is the minority, they want to know that there's equality on the on the international front, on the, the banner of foreign affairs. And they want to know how, do the, how does the government pay for the things that we're asking 
it to pay for in, in the limited role that it does play. That may be the one that we that it's probably still a little bit open for conversation. We don't know exactly how that's going to be solved. I think we talked about a couple of things. This is something I wanted to run by you. My theory is, is that most people are libertarian. They just don't know it, or they can't get past some of their basic concerns. One, because they just didn't understand. They haven't heard a conversation like this. And they were just making some assumptions that weren't true. Would you agree with that? I like to agree with it because I think that it's very optimistic. I I will I might adjust to say that more people people are open to libertarianism. They just don't know it yet because they haven't heard it, you know, in an honest way. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm saying. And maybe they haven't heard a conversation like this where someone like you has has walked them through it or articulated it. Now, you've obviously talked to lots of people, but there's still so many people that just haven't been exposed to this information. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why I'm so committed to, you know, to talking about it is I would just I want to share this with as many people as possible. Well, because I think I think their concerns and, and this is kind of where the checklist comes in. I think their concerns, if we, in case we haven't addressed them are one, they think that outcomes are better when individual groups and corporations are regulated. They think that government involvement is the best way to have their most critical needs met. The trade-off for maximized freedom is that people have to provide for themselves. Not everyone necessarily has the resources to do that. We've certainly covered that. Individuals and corporations, they do bad things. And and so they think that the government is the best way to hold those accountable or to have consequences rendered. We talked about this for sure. You know, the libertarian position on foreign policy potentially could alienate allies or or give free reign to terrorists and hostile foreign governments. I, I think you made an excellent point that there, there's no denying that there's still terrorism. That's a fact. And I don't know if that'll ever go away. But I think you made an important point that really conflict or war really isn't nearly as common. It's, it's kind of rare in, t- in today's world. And this is one thing that I don't know if we've necessarily touched on. But if other countries aren't playing by similar rules, you know, say, say let's just say that we wave a wand and we're playing by libertarian rules in, in that type of society and other countries aren't, does that put the U.S. at a disadvantage anywhere? Well, there are other countries are already not playing by the rules, right? So, you know, I hate to pick on the two countries that are in the news most often because it's such a like a token thing, but we'll use Russia and China. So we know that uh, China, they do sketchy stuff all the time. Uh, we don't trust them as far as their like, you know, their security and intelligence uh, community goes. We don't uh, trust everything that they're doing with the one belt, one road system. But we do have the immense firepower that we have. If we were using it in a different way and less aggressively, I don't think that they would think, oh, now is a great time to go and take over the United States or bully their allies. Because, you know, libertarian utopia doesn't exist and we're not going to magically undo a hundred years of you know, U.S. militarism and wars for empire, the, the power exists. It exists um, already. So I don't think that people are going to all of a sudden become less intimidated by us if we pull troops out of other countries. The, the same thing goes with Russia. You know, we don't really have a lot of action with the Russian military, but they're out there doing stuff that's not great. You know, they they created quite a bit of a mess in Syria after they said that they were going to go in and save the day. Uh, if anybody's interested in looking into that, I would recommend, you know, Scott Horton's podcasts. Uh, the United States is a huge empire and power. And I don't think that we're uh, 
we're going to be threatened by anyone if we scale back. I do think, though, that we're going to get a lot less threats. One thing we didn't really talk about is blowback and how aggressive foreign policy really puts us more at risk. Uh, terrorists in the United States, we like to have sort of a simplified notion that they hate us for our freedoms. But the reality is that a lot of them hate us because we have killed people at weddings and funerals uh, with drone strikes. You know, that creates blowback. When your only exposure to the United States military is to see it murder innocent people in your community, you don't grow fond of it. You you generally want to seek revenge on someone who's murdered your whole family. And so having a more peaceful foreign policy would definitely make us safer in the long run. Same for the drug war. You know, people worry about, you know, I want to speak to conservatives on this. They worry about violent criminals and, and, and thugs coming over our borders and running drugs and trafficking children. Well, if, if you would legalize drugs and if you would legalize sex work for adults, you would have, you will destroy the incentive for people to come over here illegally and do things behind closed doors. Uh, you make things a lot harder on the people who want to harm us and, and take advantage of those illegal laws and run black markets. So I think a libertarian world is actually a much safer world. Okay, fair enough. Well, a, a couple of things. There's not much. We covered almost everything. There's a couple of things I noticed that we didn't cover. This is a very miscellaneous item, but I do want to ask about it. Are patents and creative works protected? There's a little bit of a split in the party on this, but I will tell you that I do not favor patents and creative works, uh, pr patent protection for creative works. I do not subscribe to intellectual property. But the Constitution does uh, does provide for it, and that would be protected in the courts like it is right now. So if someone infringes on your intellectual property or patent, you sue them. That's covered in the Constitution. That goes unchanged under the current landscape? Yeah. Okay. What about infrastructure? Who's responsible for that? Uh, that depends. Uh, limited infrastructure is provided for in the Constitution. Uh you know, the, the token libertarian question is, who will build the roads? Right. That should definitely be provided for privately. And I know, like, people who are new to libertarianism are going to scream at the thought of that. I'll tell you, I live in L.A., and I spend a lot of time in Orange County, which is right next to L.A., and Orange County has toll roads. And not every road, but some of the roads are toll roads. You can drive on part of the toll road for free. And as you get further down the toll road, you have plenty of advanced warning. You pay a small fee. These roads are not covered by taxes. They're covered by tolls. And they are so smooth. And there is less traffic. And if anything happens to the toll road, it gets uh, in poor shape. It gets repaired quickly. Uh, California has this thing called the five freeway. And it has been under construction for 15 years at least. The entire time I've used it. It's, it's the, it's a project that just has no end in sight and, and it's a disaster. It's a rough road. I feel like I'm in a third world country as I exit the freeway to go to Hollywood. It's just madness. So government roads are not, they're not working out. And for people who are concerned that, oh, but you know, 
if it's a private road, I won't be able to use it because it's private. Well, that's silly because the whole point of a road is to be able to use it. People want you to use it. They want to make money off of it, but they know that if they gouge you and make it exorbitant, you're going to revolt and try to take over their road. So they're going to make it affordable because that's the only way that you can function, you know, in a society. Okay, so if you're from Texas, you may be aware of I-35, which goes all the way from South Texas around San Antonio, Austin, and literally goes all the way north almost to the Canadian border. And then, of course, there's other major freeways like I-20 that cross multiple states, cross the southeast. They're all over the country. Same solution for, for these major roadways? Yeah, I think so. I think that major roadways like that are going to be uh, built, and ideally they would be privatized. Uh, I don't like... I don't like the unholy alliance of privatized government roads. So one thing that we have is, you know, you can pay in L.A. to take the fast lane on the freeway. So it's a road that you had to pay for with your taxes. And on top of that, you've got to pay a fee. You know, that's ridiculous. So I don't want people to think that I'm espousing that. I would like roads to be privatized. Federal roads, you know, would I think that would be federal infrastructure that crosses state to state. I could totally see that being, you know, maintained by the federal government uh, with a minimal amount of taxation to support it. Okay, got it. Because I was going to say, uh, say trucking or just the average family vacation all of a sudden bec- becomes very expensive, whereas a lot of people may choose a road trip versus airfare because it's much cheaper now. But if you're paying massive tolls as you cross the country, that could get really expensive. Yeah, massive tolls I wouldn't be in favor of. But, you know, $5 to get on this, you know, 200-mile stretch of road, $500 or $5 to get on the next 100-mile stretch of road, that's not crazy when you consider how much is taken out of your paycheck for taxes. It's it's not going to be more. It'll probably be less. Who decides when, hey, that private company is charging too much for us to use that road? Oh, uh, well, you generally see the market uh, work things out like that, just like it does in every other area. uh, um, And things like that can also get litigated in court. Okay. Air traffic control and other travel safety issues? Air traffic control. So I think this is sort of like medical practice. You're not going to see complete... uh, completely uneducated, unqualified people get behind air traffic control. I think it would be much better service if it's privatized. I think about the TSA and how they haven't caught a single terrorist since they were uh, created in 2001, but they've stolen a whole lot of stuff from a whole lot of people. They have uh, groped and inappropriately grabbed a ton of people and illegally detained people. So I don't have a lot of faith in uh, in that institution. If it was a private institution, it would absolutely have been abolished and knocked down by now. But because the government secures these people's jobs, they continue to just make an absolute mockery of U.S. air travel. But what about literally air traffic control of just the massive network of airplanes flying all over the place that you would privatize that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Private companies work together all the time. Okay. I, I don't see why why that wouldn't work out with air traffic control. We wouldn't see we wouldn't all of a sudden see people say, "Oh, well, I don't like using these signals, so I'm going to use these other signals." Like, we can't wave a magic wand and go back in time and give people the opportunity to use you know wildly different uh, codes and 
regulations at different airports, like these, these practices and norms already exist. And if you saw privatization happen, you wouldn't see every single communication tool and effort be undone. You would just probably see a lot better service and, and uh, different prices, hopefully, hopefully a lot cheaper. Local parks? Local parks should absolutely be maintained by local communities. And I also think that private parks would be great. I know if I had the option and the money to open a private park in my neighborhood, I definitely would. Uh, I think that I think that there is an opportunity to have both. And I think that there are communities that are going to want to band together and pay for local public parks. As, we as have a, private museums, you know, and I think private parks would be a great, a, a great idea. As a philanthropic endeavor? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I in my neighborhood, I live in a place that's a mix of apartments and houses. And it makes me sad to see when I drive down the street, the kids are playing in the street because they don't really have a yard. And, you know, just a block over, there's this old historic building. It's really cool. They have this big, uh, big nature walk thing. And it's closed. It's a government building. It's closed except for two hours on Saturday. That makes no sense to me. Why can't kids go play there during the week? You know, why can't it be open? So, you know, private parks would probably not be subject to so many ridiculous regulations and, and rules and, and weirdness about preserving this, that, or the other. Like, why don't you just let kids play? We would be able to really meet, you know, we would be able to meet a need. Okay, this this could expose my ignorance, but is national parks is that does that fall under the constitution? Oh, um well, not directly. That's one of those things that I think is covered under you know, some of the vague language in the constitution that I wish wasn't there. So, national parks I don't have my pocket constitution right in front of me. But I'm not I'm not really crazy about national parks. Oh, tell me why. Because because a lot of people feel like that's one of our greatest treasures. Oh, sure. Well, they could be state parks. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those parks. Like, absolutely, they should exist. I'm okay. happy that they do. But I would rather they be state parks. You know, I would rather the federal government not necessarily control the land. Um, federal uh, and, and sometimes state um, Parks are mismanaged and they can cause wildfires if they're not managed properly. Uh, sometimes there are some natural resources that could be used without disturbing, you know, the entirety of the park and that those resources are mismanaged. I, I think that moving to a smaller government control of parks would probably be beneficial for parks and for the people who enjoy them. Okay. And the last one is somewhat related, but what about protecting environment, habitats, forests, certain animals, those types of things? I think that sort of stuff should be done at a community level, uh, not at a federal level. I think communities know best. They're the best equipped to figure out what needs to be done. So if a community wants to protect like a wetland uh, for a wildlife refuge, something like that, they can do that. And if they start to see that there's a problem with some of the policies they have, they can more quickly make those changes because they're the ones who observe that. Because I would say, you know, by the way, that ecosystems are not stable. They're not constant. They actually change and adapt. And trying to preserve ecosystems indefinitely is is not environmentally sound and it doesn't reflect the laws of nature. Okay. Well, as far as the platform goes, I think that covers it. The only other thing that I want to talk to you about today is party strategy. Party strategy. Okay. 
Well, let's talk about just the National Party for a moment. I'd like to distinguish, uh, let listeners know that there are there's a National Libertarian Party, a State Libertarian Party. Uh, every state has a party. And then county-level parties within all of the states. So I run the L.A. County Party, and I'm also going to be running for chair of the National Party in 2022. And one of the reasons I'm doing that is because I'm very interested in changing up the strategy, particularly the messaging. People sometimes ask, what is the purpose of the Libertarian Party at the national level? And it turns out that people don't really know and people don't agree. So I would like to to bring some solid strategy and uh, cohesion to the National Party so that people can understand its purpose and so that it can carry out its purpose in the best possible way. Well, one thing that I learned about you from a very recent interview that you did was that you are particularly good at coordinating and unifying. And I think the little that I know about the state of the Libertarian Party, that, that's much needed. And you're very qualified to do that. Yes. Thank you. So like all political organizations, you know, the Libertarian Party is broken into little warring factions. And uh, to a certain extent, people are always going to engage in tribalism, and that's okay. What I would like to see happen is I would like to see the party become more unified and focused on promoting liberty in spite of its tribalistic tendencies. What I mean by that is, oh, you're in a caucus, you're dedicated to this cause, whatever. That's okay. I'm not asking you to remold your lifestyle and change your passions and your emphasis. But what I'm asking you to do is work with people, you know, anyway, who don't share necessarily your same, you know, unique uh, niche interests, because we all care about liberty and we want to promote that and promote it, you know, for the greater good of of, uh, of our country and to promote liberty and try to see liberty achieved in our lifetime. Yeah, that's actually one of the things specifically, I'm glad you explained that, that stood out in that last interview was if you come across somebody in your own party that that has a, a, a niche or a nuanced issue that's important to them, and that's not your issue, it doesn't mean you have to fight about it. What's important is that you you agree with that person on the basics and then allow people to have their nuanced issues. Absolutely. You know, I think that the Libertarian Party needs to get better messaging and social media and we need to do a better job of outreach. Uh, But there are people who specialize in outreach to the left. I don't think that that should be the focus of the National Party. I don't think we should just outreach to the left. But I think the people who are good at that should be encouraged to do it. We don't have to embarrass them. We don't have to give them a hard time or tell them that they don't have a place in the party. No, let them do it and let them be good at it. And sometimes when that comes up in current events, we need to highlight it. But we shouldn't focus all of our messaging on just the left or just the right or just on this topic or just on that topic. We need to be balanced and we need to be able to, what I like to call, read the room. Take the temperature of you know people on social media in the country. See what people are receptive to and message and market to them without compromising your principles. It can be done. We just need to actually, I don't know, give it a shot. Right, right. In another interview, maybe on the Tom Wood show, I think it was just after the election you appeared, and you said that you didn't think that you didn't think that Joe Jorgensen's role in the presidential election resulted in Biden winning the swing states. Now, it was close, but mathematically you seem to be right. Walter Block, a libertarian and professor of economics at Loyola, recently said that he urged libertarians in purple states 
to or purple areas really to vote Republican. Cliff Maloney of the Young Americans for Liberty promotes a strategy of focusing on state and local elections. And I think he might have even have said there's no reason to have a candidate for president. I'm assuming they're not the only ones who have similar opinions. So the question there is, does it make sense for the Libertarian Party to have a candidate for president when, and this is definitely arguable, but the best case scenario is a couple of percent and to interrupt things rather than actually contend? Yeah. So let me uh, explain this from two perspectives. One is the Libertarian Party has to have a president to maintain ballot access in all 50 states. So without a presidential candidate, you don't get ballot access in a lot of states. Uh, And that's just the law. And that's what we're working with right now. So you have to have a president. That means people have to vote for it because whether or not you have ballot access is often dependent upon how many votes uh, the presidential candidate gets or how many signatures they get to get her on the ballot. So uh, as far as Cliff's question goes, like, sorry, that's just got to exist. Now, Walter Block makes a, uh, he makes a good argument uh, from his perspective. I will tell you that there are libertarians who do not think that Donald Trump is a pragmatic, uh, a pragmatic choice for libertarians. He's deregulated a lot of stuff. He has at least not gotten us into more wars. And so I appreciate the libertarian things that he's done. Regarding some of his other stuff, like the trillion dollar uh, stimulus package, you know, bailouts, uh, the the weird stuff that happened at the beginning of the pandemic with the, with the FDA and him not uh, allowing or making sure that testing and things like that got got implemented faster uh you know people were very critical of that whether or not that's my opinion is neither here or there but you know people don't like how he handled that uh there are other things he's done that have not been very libertarian federal uh gun control law has been enforced more aggressively in his administration than any of the past like four or five administrations So, you know, principled libertarians aren't going to want to vote for him. And I believe that they should be able to vote for whoever they want to vote for. Um, There are also some libertarians who lean more to the left. And for them, the choice is going to be between Joe Jorgensen and and Joe Biden. You know, it's weird to me, but, but I'm not everyone. So I think that Walter Block should probably take a little bit more into consideration. Yeah, perhaps you're right. He was involved in a fierce debate basically deciding if you're a libertarian just in general obviously nuances aside that trump was the pragmatic choice he's going to do uh, he said on a libertarian scale of one to a hundred you know biden's a one or less than a one trump's a 10 on a hundred scale and so that's not a great choice but it's just marginally the better choice it was a good debate. I appreciated it. And I appreciated Walter Block's perspective because one thing that libertarians need to be better about, and this is something I'm really interested in for the National Party, is we need to learn to take criticism from small L libertarians, people who are not members of the party, people who care about liberty and freedom. They may have a more pragmatic approach or they may just you know, see things differently. So Walter Block's criticisms and his arguments are important because we need to understand and, you know, if we want to expand our base, we need to be able to listen to them. And I'm really glad you said that because that was something else that stood out in, in one of your recent interviews. And that was just as a party being more welcoming to non-party libertarians. Absolutely. The, the Libertarian Party has this 
has this assumption that's incorrect. They think that they are the base of the liberty movement, but they're not. The base of the liberty movement is libertarians. And we are a piece of that pie. You know, I want us to grow. I want us to become a bigger piece. But we have got to be uh, honest and, and open with ourselves about the fact that a lot of libertarians out there don't like the messaging of the party. They don't like how uh, purist it is uh, and, and that it's a little bit culty. We need to be able to take feedback from them. We need to have people not hate on other liberty icons just because they're not in the libertarian party. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, the LP didn't exist when the country was founded. I'm not hating on Thomas Jefferson for it. Like, let's be a little bit more reasonable. It's possible to put the Libertarian Party at the top of your priorities list, but also give credit to people like Ron Paul who grew our liberty movement. You know, we can thank them without being turncoat traitors. It's okay. Well, I I think that makes so much sense. And this this is actually one of my hot button issues because – one of the hardest things to do is turn a non-libertarian into a libertarian. A much easier task is to take people that already are part of the freedom movement and just be more welcoming and bring them into the fold of what's existing. And that's the easiest way to, to grow the party is stop alienating other people in the freedom movement. It's low-hanging fruit, you know, and and I, I um, I'm very active in the in the Mises caucus. I'm very open about that. And this is one of the things that I think we're really doing a good job of is we're listening to other people and patiently hearing them out when they say, Hey, I think the LP sucks. You know, I got to swallow my pride and say, tell me why. And I need to take their feedback. I don't follow every single piece of their advice, but when I hear the same thing from a hundred different people, it gives me pause, you know, and, one of the things that gets sort of leveled at the Mises caucus is they're like, oh, you're the cult of podcasters. Well, the reason that we pay attention to and give deference to libertarian podcasters is because these are people who have built an audience and they have crafted their messaging and it's tested and we know that it works. If we're going to be changing our messaging, we need to look into what works and there are ways that we can test that. We don't have to wildly shoot from the hip and make something up. Because that wouldn't happen in any other organization. Any other giant national organization would go to a professional marketing uh, services firm and say, this is what we've done. Can you help us show us where we went wrong and show us where to improve? That's what the LP needs to do. And so the first thing we should do is utilize the resources that are being offered to us for free or next to nothing. Okay. This one's maybe a little bit controversial, but... I did have a couple of people ask me that knew I was going to do this interview the question, why doesn't the Libertarian Party pick candidates, mainly for president, with more mainstream appeal? Unfortunately, that might mean, you know, a handsome and charismatic white guy in his 50s that's at least six foot tall and has a little gray in his hair. So the general question is, why doesn't the Libertarian Party choose candidates that are a little more mainstream or, or has more mainstream appeal? Okay, so there are a couple of different ways to answer this. One is the candidates, well, you pick from who's running, first of all. So we can't necessarily force someone to run. And we have had some people that we really wanted to run, and then they didn't run. So mainstream appeal, we've got to pick from libertarians. So we have to find mainstream libertarians who are willing to run a presidential campaign, which takes a lot of work, and it takes, you know, like a year out of your life. So there's that. Uh, Mainstream appeal, there's an ideological split in the party between people who are more pragmatic and people who are less pragmatic. 
And more pragmatic types tend to say, you know, we can sacrifice some of our principles if this person doesn't agree with X, Y, Z, and that will, uh, it'll get us more exposure, right? And then we'll grow the party. Uh, People who are not pragmatic look at that approach and they say, well, maybe that will get us a lot more votes, like it got us in the Gary Johnson 2016 election, which I am very happy that we got those votes. And I thank Mr. Johnson for making that happen. However, we look at that and we say, what's the retention like? Did it, did it grow the party or was it just that people heard about us and they checked off a box because they found the other two candidates intolerable? Uh, in 2016, no, in 2017, we had 7,500 members who had joined the national party directly through the Gary Johnson campaign. But when we looked at the end of 2019, only 1,500 of those people had maintained their memberships. It's because ultimately they signed up once, but they weren't particularly inspired, you know, by that candidate or his campaign or messaging, you know, to stay in the party. It was just a one-time thing. So some of us want to look at our presidential candidate as a person who is going to inform people and grow our grow our base and that those people need to be really good messengers and pragmatic mainstream people aren't necessarily known for that we would rather have a slightly lower uh, vote total but get people who are committed to liberty and help us grow the party at a grassroots level that was a lot of information does that any of that make sense oh yeah no that makes perfect sense where are you on the pragmatic spectrum I would like someone who has got some name recognition and a following built in, but I want them to be someone who's very good with messaging. So that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to do a Republican, uh, an ex-Republican governor. People ask me a lot about Justin Amash, and I would say this about Justin Amash. He absolutely has the name recognition. I, he's, he is a libertarian. He, you know, he's registered. He finished his term in Congress as an L. And if he gets the nomination, I will support him. Absolutely. But... When he's campaigning, I would really appreciate it if he would talk a little bit more about liberty and spend a little bit less time just talking about how we're a third choice. Because obviously we're a, we're a third choice, but uh, we need to talk about why we're a good choice. And uh, he, he would need to do more of that to get my vote in 2024. And where are you personally on the pragmatic spectrum? Uh, I'm, I am not uh, a member of the pragmatic caucus. There is a caucus called that. I am more principled. I have a focus on Austrian economics. I want to make sure though, in the, in the party though, that there is, there, there's room for prags to breathe. I don't want to purge pragmatists from the party. I just want our messaging and our principles, you know, to stay principled. I think that there's I think there's room for both, but uh, you can run a pragmatic campaign trying to reduce taxes without eliminating them at a local level without watering down messaging at the national level. Okay, so I've got two more questions. I'm and one is related to pragmatism. I'm a pragmatic just in the, from the general sense, not by the libertarian definition, just by nature. So my question is, the modern rules of the political game have been in place for generations they're not likely to change in a meaningful way anytime soon. And I've heard you very recently say that to run on issues is a good strategy. And I thought was that I didn't think of that. That was really interesting. So maybe this is not do this instead, but maybe pursue this as, as a parallel strategy, but why not seek office under one of the existing parties and push the libertarian agenda from there, 
kind of a Trojan horse strategy. And and that seems like maybe what Ron and Rand Paul have done. Well, I have a lot to say about this. Um, for, for one, it's not nearly as successful as people think it is. Do, are there some successes? Yeah. Thomas Massey, uh, Justin Amash, uh, Rand Paul, although he's become a little bit more, uh, conservative lately and as, and less libertarian, but I think he's still a wonderful ally. Uh, but that's a handful of examples. Oh, geez. What's his name? The, the mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee, he's a libertarian, but he technically ran as a Republican. I would say though, that the Ron Paul revolution in 2008 and in 2012 was incredibly inspiring, but it sort of collapsed once Donald Trump gained office and you saw principled uh, Republican Liberty Caucus people sort of bold under the pressure of this make America great again populism. And it was like there was no there's no room in the air uh, in the there's no air in the room for them to breathe, you know, and, and they just folded and they gave in to uh, to this wave of nationalism that has kind of swept over Republicans. I'm not convinced that running principled libertarian campaigns at this point uh, in history is going to be something that you can do under Republican names because the Republican Party definitely has an agenda and it's desperate to stay in power right now. And I don't think that liberty is at the top of uh, is at the top of its priority list. I think that if this was going to stay a successful model, for libertarians to run, then we would we would still be seeing success, but we've seen the RLC basically collapse in on itself, which is sad. Now, if someone wants to to do that on their own, I think they're free to do it, and I wish them success. If there was an opportunity to do the Democrats, I wish them success too. But you know, my allegiance is to the Libertarian Party, and I'm gonna I'm gonna stick it out here. But best of luck to people who try other things. Is it helpful to the liberty movement for people to be out there at least trying to pursue that as a parallel strategy? It seems like it's helpful. I think so, because it pushes the the Overton window, you know, in the direction of freedom and, and any little thing helps. Okay, last question. So I'm sure there's more, but the following is a list of notable libertarians, and I'm sure you're aware of most or all of these. Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, Peter Thiel, the founder of or co-founder of PayPal, David and Charles Koch, the Koch brothers, Rupert Murdoch, Vince Vaughn, Drew Carey, Clint Eastwood, Gary Oldman, Kurt Russell, Trey Parker and Matt Stone from South Park, John Stossel, Jimmy Vaughn, Rufus Wainwright, and John Popper from Blues Traveler. That's a very short list, but it's there's some very notable people on there. Has there been any effort to get people like this involved in a major way to grow the party or even run for office? Uh, get in, involved in a major way to grow the party. Yes. Run for office. I'm not sure, honestly. Some of, plenty of those names actually on the list are people that the California Libertarian Party has reached out to, to speak at our convention. Some of them just kind of fell through at the last minute, but some of them have spoken at other libertarian events. I'm pretty sure it's, it's a huge commitment to run for office and I'm not sure how it impacts your business, you know, what stakeholders view about of it. So that's also something to take into consideration. But there's at least been an effort to pull in these types of influential or powerful or people from entertainment or business or these types of arenas to advance the party. There has been. I don't necessarily know that there has been the right approach with them, though. So that's something that I'm interested in doing. Okay. 
in my chair race. I think it's really important. And one of the ways that I'm interested in doing that is facilitating through dialogue, a dialogue through people I already know and have good connections with who have better connections to them because I don't turn up my nose at libertarian podcasters and other people who have a following. I don't have some weird jealousy issue with them. Right. And if they have really good connections then I can lean on those connections. So this is just another example where being friendly to the Liberty movement will help the libertarian party. Yeah, I agree. Like I said a couple of times before, that's why I think you're the right person for the job. I really do. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, this is a much more of a marathon than I planned for, but that's all I have for you. You've been incredibly generous with your time today, and I really do thank you for giving us greater insight into the Libertarian Party. I, I think it was educational for everyone. And frankly, my hope is that this conversation can get up to, out to enough people and pushes more people in a more libertarian direction. I'll give you the last word. Tell everybody where they can find you and feel free to leave us with any other parting thoughts. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, if you're interested in uh, updates in L.A. County's Libertarian Party, because I, uh, it's a hotbed of activism, you can visit lplac.us. And my chair race will get going uh, hot and heavy in January of next year. You can follow along all of my updates at AngelaMcArdle.com. You'll see my next speaking engagements, what podcasts I've been on, and most importantly, resources that I want to share with you if you're interested in growing your own liberty movement or speaking out against the lockdowns or just engaging in any sort of liberty political activism. Very good. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck to you. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for listening to the latest episode of The Interview Show. We are a proud member of the Podfix Network. To find other great shows consistently creating platinum-level content, go right now to podfixnetwork.com or search at Podfix on Twitter. Special thanks to Phil Rude, that illustrator guy, for our custom logo. This is The Interview Show by Gravity Beard. Dumb Spyro Sparrow. <laughs>